me now or listen on as I read Acts chapter 15, not quite uh, to the end of the chapter, ending uh, at the end of the letter in verse 29. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 29. And hear God's word. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when they had when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by the mouth, uh, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of God. Of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they uh, became silent, silent, James answered, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and will rebuild The tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things now to God from eternity are all his works known to God are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that. We write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations uh, has has had those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas. And Silas leading men among the brethren, they wrote this letter by them, the apostles and elders and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, 
Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, uh, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you once again that you have given us your word and that by the preaching there is at least this opportunity for it to be open to us in a new way and so we pray it would. Dear Lord, open your word to us. Let us see it with greater power, with greater conviction, with greater faith and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's uh, it's difficult to read a commentary on this section without uh, someone saying uh, that this is, and I'm echoing the commentaries, this is really uh, a turning point in the life of the church. This is a decisive moment. This is a watershed, something like that. Uh, the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were streaming in, but it was suddenly beginning to occur to the Jewish church, uh, churches and uh, Christians in Jerusalem that they were being outnumbered and that increasingly not only would there be Jews and Gentiles fellowshipping together, but that uh, but that the Gentiles were going very soon, if not already, to outnumber the Jews in the church. What was to be done? It was, in essence, a question for the Jerusalem church to settle. Uh, we read at the end of chapter 14 this hopeful word. Uh, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that all that God had done with them, that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This was tremendously good news. They were reporting this in Antioch. We'll later see they report the news in Jerusalem, or at least that's said in the text. I don't know if I'll mention that again. At any rate, this was a very hopeful news. But it did, hopeful though it was, it did present this difficulty that I've been describing So let me uh, divide the narrative uh, as we have it under three headings. The first of which is the controversy. Verses one through five. What was the the controversy that brought about uh, the Jerusalem Council? Well, let me uh, divide that under five further headings. The first of which is this, the setting. We read that men came down from Judea. We, we don't read where they came to, but I've already told you. They were in Antioch. They were reporting that God had opened the door to the Gentiles. And then men came down from Judea to trouble uh, the church and to dispute this point, even as we later find the Pharisees doing in Jerusalem. Well, the, the next thing is the issue. The issue was, uh, in particular, the law of Moses. And even more particularly, the issue of or the question of circumcision. The idea was that Christianity, from the Jewish perspective, and remember the uh, the first Christians were uh, that were converted in Jerusalem were Jews by birth, raised as Jews. The idea from this perspective, I'm not saying for a moment the apostles were arguing this, but these men were arguing as Jews that Christianity was indeed uh, the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. It was, in that sense, uh, in their minds, an extension of Judaism. But as they were presenting it, it required one to become a Jew first and then a Christian. 
A man had to pass through the old covenant in order to arrive at the new covenant. He needed to be circumcised before he could be baptized. That's a very crude way of putting it, but that's the best way that I could think to put it. You see, a man, a Gentile, couldn't become a Christian only. And simply, he had to pass again through the old covenant under the law of Moses before he could arrive uh, at the Christian position. We find them saying in verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Or as we find in verse uh, verse 2, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. It was more than a question of church membership, you see. It was a question of salvation. And let me just say as an aside, I'll say it later, but I, I, I want to say it now. If, if anyone ever says you must... Or unless you are blank, you cannot be saved and it isn't have faith in Jesus. You ought to raise an eyebrow. And that's what they were doing. They were adding conditions to the gospel. They were preaching another way of salvation. They were doing so. They were doing so from within the Antioch church. Not from without, but from within. They were preaching salvation by law. In that they were including, you see, not just the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but they were very explicitly commending and requiring the ceremonial law out of which circumcision uh, came. It is against this background that it becomes clear why Paul makes uh, so many assertions in his letters, such as Galatians, and we'll return to Galatians in a moment, uh, against this teaching. He was confronting men who were saying this. This was an issue, well, I won't say that was ravaging the early church, but it was certainly troubling and upsetting her. And they were having to defend the gospel of free grace against that background. Who were the actors? That's the next question. Well, they're called certain men. Verse 1, they are described as being of the sect of the Pharisees. Verse 5, that's a little more helpful. In Galatians chapter 2, we see that they are men who came from James. We need to be very careful when we read that. And it becomes abundantly clear in Acts chapter 15 that by no means were they a faithful representative of James. They were simply claiming the authority of James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, uh, to endorse their, their teaching. Uh, but they, they, were not, they were not faithful to his teaching. Uh, they were Jewish Christians. That's what I'm saying. Now, I want to make that as clear as I can. Let me say it again. They were Jewish Christians. They were not simply Jews. They were men who had, in some sense, converted to Christianity. They were part of the church. They were in the church. Perhaps even they had achieved a level of status, though uh, we can't be sure about that. Now, as soon as I say that, let me say that their Christianity was massively defective. We, we could easily say of them, and I think rightly so, that they were legalists. And as legalists, we would be right to query whether they were really Christians after all. But from the standpoint of having a place in the church, there is no question. They did have a place in the church. These were Jews who had, I'll say it again, in some sense converted to Christianity, even if that was a false faith and a false profession. At least we can say their Christianity was massively defective. Jews who were converted to Christianity and who were still 
who were still striving for Judaism or contending for Judaism. That was one side of it. They were seeking to bring men back under the law. The other side, the other uh, group of actors were these three figures, Peter, James, the brother of our Lord, and Paul, along with Paul Barnabas. Peter, James, and Paul contending for the gospel of free grace, the gospel as we know it. A fourth point concerning the controversy is its relation to Galatians chapter 2. Now, uh, one of the things that I struggle the most to do, and I don't think I do a very good job from the pulpit, and it's because I struggle to do so in my own mind. This is certainly not my gift, but it is reconstructing historical events. But one of the questions that we have from Galatians chapter 2 is how exactly these two narratives fit, fit together. On some level, there, 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 is, there is an obvious correlation between the two. But to what extent does Galatians chapter 2 tell the same story as Acts chapter 15? And this is where things get a bit more complicated. I even discovered there are various theories as to what occurred. And, and, and I'm going to try as well as I can to tell you what I think happened in agreement with F.F. F. Bruce. So I'll at least claim his authority. And he is a master of reconstructing the history. Paul tells us in Galatians. Now, I read this earlier. Uh, verses 1 through 16 in Galatians 2. Paul tells us in verses 1 through 10 about a meeting in Jerusalem. That doesn't seem to fit with Acts chapter 15 at all, though some say it does, but we're going to say it doesn't. More likely is this construction that by the time we come to verse 11, they're in Antioch. And, 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 and Paul opens by saying Peter came down uh, to Antioch. Or, or, well, let's see what he says. He says, yes, Peter came down to Antioch. So that's how he begins. And it is there that Peter was troubled, or we could say the faith of Peter was troubled, and he was upset by these men who came down from Jerusalem. These men were able to, I don't know how else to put it, to shake the faith of Peter, at least in the realm of his practice. I, I don't envision Peter here actually denying the gospel. That isn't what I read in Galatians chapter 2, but I read of his practice denying the gospel. And so the way I, that I've always put it is that he was denying the gospel by way of implication, by way of his practice and his relation to the Gentiles. So let us call a spade a spade. Peter encounters these men in Antioch and he caves. He was rebuked for eating uh, with the Gentiles and he decides it's wiser for whatever reason not to do so any longer. And what happens next? Well, there in Antioch, Paul opposes him. And Paul makes it very clear throughout Galatians chapter 2 that he never did give a single inch to these men who were contending for circumcision. And as he opposes Peter to his face, he states the gospel as clearly as he can. Peter had missed the gospel way of, by, by way of implication. What does Paul do? He preaches the gospel to him. Now, this incident, according to this construction, occurs before the council in Jerusalem. And it seems clear that by the time Peter was found 
Uh, back in Jerusalem, his theology was sorted out, and we find him together with Paul contending for the same gospel, and James as well. And we can thank God for that, that these two men were not at odds, but that they were contending for the same thing. Peter, uh, Peter got his, his theology all, all in a mess, and Paul sorted them out. And it's often like that, isn't it? The resolution was this. Number five, go to Jerusalem. With this controversy standing at the background, we read nothing of Peter in Acts 15, but supplementing it with Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. Peter and Paul, aware of the problem, Peter coming to his senses, we need to go to Jerusalem. We need to sort this out. We need to talk to James. We need him to speak decisively on the matter. That's what they do. They needed a resolution on this disputed issue. Well, that brings me to the second point, and that is the council. Having seen the controversy, now the council, verses 6 through 21. We read in Jerusalem that the apostles and the elders meet. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Let me ask you, what does that sound like? That sounds like an awful lot like a presbytery meeting, doesn't it? Because that's what it was. It was a Presbytery meeting. Uh, by the way, if anyone ever asks you to defend Presbyterian polity, which includes not only the meeting of the elders in individual churches, but also the meeting of the elders at regional churches, Acts 15 is your text. That is uh, the, 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 the soundest defense any man could give of Presbyterian polity. Or perhaps we could say a general assembly. At any rate, it's the same idea. We will return to this when we come to the application of the sermon. But... What we find in in the case of this presbytery meeting, uh, as I read this, it really does remind me of of one of our presbytery meetings. We find uh, various speakers, uh, and and it's it's Peter who speaks first, and then Paul, and then James. And then they come to a decision, and they take action after debating the matter and coming to one mind. So it is very natural that Peter speaks first. Peter was the first among the apostles. He always was. And, and our Lord placed him in that position. We find Peter uh, is the one who speaks first in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, he has this prominent place. Though, very interestingly, uh, he, he fades into the background after this incident. Nonetheless, this is what he says there. He, he speaks of an important principle based on an important precedent. You remember what occurs in Acts chapter 10 when Peter's so reluctant to go to the home of Cornelius. Uh, but once he gives up his reluctance, uh, he not only preaches the gospel in the home of Cornelius, but what does he do? He eats at his table. He spends the night with him. Here is a Jew having fellowship with a Gentile because uh, where there was once division, uh, the two have been brought together and made once, uh, made one. There was tangible peace that was achieved as a result of the gospel. Now, again, you could look at it from the, from the standpoint of the Jerusalem Jewish Christians, and they say, all right, uh, we'll make that allowance. It, it really didn't become a problem until this sort of thing was happening everywhere. Then they began to take issue. But Peter is saying, don't you remember what happened then? And don't you remember what God was making clear to us as a result of that? This is what Peter was saying. Uh, in, 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 in chapter 11, he says, if therefore God gave the same gift as he gave us when we believed, speaking to Jews on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Uh, then God, he says, has also granted 
repent uh, to the Gentiles repentance to life. It was God who did this thing. This is what he says here. God chose among us. Well, you know that a, a while ago, and he's referring to the Cornelius incident, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of God. Uh, sorry, the word of the gospel and believe. This is something that was well known. It was something that was accepted by the Jerusalem church. It's something uh, that God did. It was a matter of God's choice. He used Peter, but it was God's choice. It was God who was drawing in and accepting and calling the Gentiles. And, and, and what God was making clear was his acceptance of them. Verse 8 So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. God makes, this is the principle based on the precedent. God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He gives the same spirit. He works the same faith. He, he, he introduces into the church by the same baptism. He calls them to the same life of obedience. You didn't hear me saying anything about nationality, did you? Christianity is not tied to these things in any way. When a man becomes a Christian, well, whatever his background, he's just alike with all his other Christians, with all his fellow Christians, I mean. Every Christian is made one with his fellow Christians by the same Holy Spirit and by faith alone. For God has accepted him, my brother, by saving him in the same way as me. And why then should I not accept him? Even as God did. Why would I erect barriers that God has broken down? That's what Paul or God had made clear to Peter. Only for a brief moment. And I think we can all relate to Peter here. For a brief moment in Antioch he had forgotten it. He lost his way. But, but he, he saw it again quite clearly. And what made him see it was this precedent. Wait a second. No I realize this is what God had done. And this is what he was doing. This is the wonderful thing about Pentecost and the early church. It was, it's God's call of the Gentiles and bringing them in to the church. A matter uh, of rejoicing for the Jew who knew his scriptures. By the way, Peter says in verse 10. Did any Jew ever succeed in keeping this law? Therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? We who were schooled under the tutelage of the law, we who sought to bear the law, we who, as Paul says in Romans chapter two, sought to teach others the law. Do you keep the law? We all know the answer to that. No, if we could not keep the law, we Jews, why would we place this burden on others. If anyone ought to have known this point, it was those who were under its bondage. Following this, he states the gospel so clearly. Even as Paul did at the end of this incident, we read him saying, We who were Jews, this is Galatians 2.15, We who were Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing, verse 16, that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith and not by works of the law. For by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. There's Paul's conclusion. But aren't we glad to see that Peter, having been uh, corrected and having his theology sorted out, is able to say something very similar. But we believe 
that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, not insofar as salvation is concerned. There is one and only one way of salvation. And that one way of salvation is also, now this is on the level of implication, but it is an important implication of the gospel. There is uh, one basis of true Christian fellowship. Now, I'm not equating Christian fellowship with the gospel. But I am saying it is the fruit of the gospel. And if we are getting Christian fellowship wrong, then we might trace it back to a defect in our theology. And so I'll say it again. There is one way of salvation for Jew and Gentile, and that is the way of faith in Jesus Christ. And any man who has the same faith as me and who knows the grace of God as I have come to know it is my brother in Christ. And I'm willing to have a meal with him. Following Peter, there is Paul and Barnabas more briefly. Now, you could say Luke is just more briefly recounting what they said, or more likely, it seems to me, and to the commentators, they had very little to say. They did rise to speak, but they realized that they were at the center of the controversy, and so that they would not become the decisive voice that would settle the controversy. Nevertheless, they do have something to say. They say this. Everyone listened to Paul and Barnabas declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Again, a briefer point. It's less um, it's less decisive, clearly. It's less destructive to the position of the Judaizers. But let us see that they were saying, in essence, that God was confirming their work among the Gentiles. We are the ones who are going out to the Gentiles and we are seeing God at work. That was their point. Just as God confirmed the message of Jesus Christ through many signs and wonders when he came to the sons of Abraham. So among Paul and Barnabas, God was confirming their work among the Gentiles by signs and wonders. It really was, in other words, God who was calling the Gentiles. But the decisive voice, as I say, is James. For uh, this obvious reason. Well, I suppose we could say two obvious reasons, one of which is uh, the opponents of the gospel were claiming his name. That's fairly important. And the other would being that he occupied the most prominent place in the in the the presbytery. No, in the Jerusalem church. Uh, And we might even imagine that he occupied in this meeting something like the role of the moderator. So we had a leading place and he waits to speak last. But once he speaks, we see. Uh, His case wins the day. He reiterates the point of Simon, he calls them, Simon Peter. After they became silent, James answered, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Again, he is citing a principle based on a precedent. He's referring to the Cornelius incident, what had already been made clear to the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 11. But he does so using the imagery of the Old Testament. If you look more closely, you see him describing the Gentiles who were called into the church using categories from the Old Testament. In a sense, you could say he was inflaming the issue, but he was also clarifying it. God was calling a people for himself. He was now including the Gentiles in this category, a people for his name. How was he claiming them? By calling them to faith 
and repentance. And he was accepting them by baptism into the church. They now were taken out from among the nations, you could say, of the heathens and becoming a people for his name. That's what the church is. And that's what the church was becoming. This mixed multitude of redeemed Jews and redeemed Gentiles. And he, as he does so, he cites the prophets. Amos, in particular, whom he says, agrees with Peter. The words of Peter agree with the words of Amos, speaking of the Gentiles who are called by my name. You see, you find that in the Old Testament. Once again, as we find Paul doing throughout Romans, so James does here, he says, you Jews really ought to know your scriptures better. Don't you realize this was the very thing the prophet Amos predicted and now it's being fulfilled in your own day? You aren't contending with Paul. You aren't contending with Peter or James or Barnabas. You're contending with the very scriptures that you claim are your own. Having said that, he offers his ruling. It's interesting to notice, again, the prominence of James in the church. I judge, therefore. And on he goes from there. This is what he determined ought to be done. I I won't say that he had total authority here because we'll later read that uh, they counsel together and they take action together based on a unanimous decision. But he's saying, in essence, this is what I think we should do. I think we should do this. I think we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. And by the way, that's what a Christian is, isn't it? It's someone who's turning to God. Someone who's turning from lawless deeds to follow the true and the living God. Someone who is being converted. Someone who's been born again. I don't think we should trouble those who are being genuinely converted, in other words, to Christianity. With a burden that we Jews could not keep. And so circumcision uh, was out of the question. It was not a matter for Gentiles to observe. Still, as Moses is taught in every city on every Sabbath, the trouble is apt to persist. And so he doesn't leave the matter there. But as a concession to make table fellowship, which again, this was the great scandal Could we have a meal together? Could we stand together on equal terms in the house of God? You think about how easy it was for us to just have a meal together after worship. But there was a day in the life of the church where that wasn't so easy. And that's what they were fighting for. Can we share a meal together after church? Well, what he says is he doesn't put the full burden on the the Jews. He says, now Jews, you have to stop. Uh, troubling the Gentiles. But then he says, listen, Gentiles, you have to make certain concessions as well. You have to make concessions that will make uh, this fellowship a little less offensive to Jews who are not quite so clear about the gospel. Now think, if Peter himself was easily thrown off on this point, surely others might as well. So in order to make this seemingly mundane to us possibility uh, occur, Sharing a meal together after church, he says this to the Gentiles. I want you to observe these three ceremonial laws. I don't want you to eat uh, anything polluted by idols. I don't want you to eat anything that was strangled or anything uh, that comes from blood or has blood in it. 
These are three ceremonial laws that concern the table. If you do these things, you're going to offend the Jew who has a tender conscience, who isn't fully persuaded, who is a weaker brother. It's fascinating to see here, and people stumble over this, and this isn't the last time we'll see this in Acts, but that there is a requirement, or I could go further and say there is a law which is imposed upon Gentile believers with respect to something that is indifferent. And so there is a great amount of uh, debate concerning this. I don't want to get uh, bogged down in that. I just want to tell you how I view it. I often think of Luther's Invocavit sermons, and I, I reference, reference them often. There were seven. Uh, he, he preached those as he came back from the Wartburg Castle. Uh, he, he, was, he was taken there after the, the trial of Worms. And, uh, and was kept there in hiding, and the Reformation was speeding on a little too fast, or maybe a lot too fast. And Luther decides it's worth risking his life to return and to preach the seven Invocavit sermons. And, and what he preached was not, good job, go on with the Reformation. What he preached is, you are steamrolling the weaker brother, who isn't ready for all of this. And the church in those days was in a similar position. It was difficult for Jews and Gentiles to, to, to just suddenly eat together when they had spent all those many centuries apart. It was not going to be such an easy transition, just as it was not going to be such an easy transition as some had thought in, uh, in Wittenberg to revolutionize and reform worship. No, it was going to take time. And so the chief consideration that Luther constrained uh, the church by just as James and the brothers did here, was the consideration of love, of a concern for my brother. When Christian fellowship is at stake, when the faith of my brother is being unsettled, love becomes the chief requirement. Love is the law that is to govern our actions. And so, in this case, abstaining from things otherwise indifferent became to them a matter of necessity, a matter of law, because a matter of Christian love, which fulfills the law. If something indifferent is harming my brother, there is a law which governs my actions, and it's not my Christian liberty. It's the law of love. But we also see there's a moral command here, and I I was interested to see how Hard some commentators work to make this also a ceremonial requirement. And I just can't accept that. No, he was saying that the thing that the Gentiles were most known for in those days, and I wonder if this sounds familiar about Gentiles today, in the first century, so the 21st century, the thing that made the, uh, the, the Gentile so repulsive to the Jew was not that he ate uh, with unclean hands. It was that he was living in a culture that was debased by sexual immorality. And you need to make it clear uh, uh, in this way in particular that the gospel really has gotten a hold of you, that you really have turned from idols to the living God, that you have embraced the message of Christianity in this way in particular, that you have uh, put away the sin of sexual immorality. Otherwise, the Jews will rightly question everything you tell them. They will rightly question your place at the table. 
In fact, as an aside, the Apostle Paul talks about the immoral man who claims he's a brother. And what does he say in 1 Corinthians 5? He says, don't even eat with him. It's funny how these things all fit together in the end. No, don't have a place at the table with the sexually immoral man. In the day, like our own, where this was the chief and the characteristic sin, let me remind you, James is saying, and let me remind you, I am saying, that there is nothing that will call into question your profession to be a Christian and your place at the table than the embrace of the characteristic sin of our age, which is sexual immorality. What is the ethic of the Bible? What is the ethic of the New Testament? To those who have turned to God, abstain. Abstain. If you do not abstain from this sin, well then I I say to you, not only will your profession or your claim to be a Christian rightly be called into question, even by the vilest legalist in the world, and you won't have a single leg, leg to stand on against him, but your behavior... And your sin will be offensive to every form of Christian fellowship you could possibly imagine. And I say again with Paul, the duty of the Christian uh, who sit across the table from a sexually immoral man who claims to be a brother is to say, as I once heard a pastor say, you know, I, I shouldn't even be at the table with you. And he got up and he left. And so what is the biblical counsel for a man who is practicing sexual immorality? It is to abstain, it is to stop, it is to turn. Sexual immorality, so many of us who have turned, who have been converted, we Gentiles, we acknowledge that this is the characteristic, it is the chief sin of the age. And we acknowledge as well that it used to be our chief sin. But can we not say of ourselves, as the Apostle Paul said, of the Corinthians... In 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, he's speaking to Gentiles. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of Our God. Such were some of us, but we have turned, we have been washed, we have been sanctified, and we are abstaining. But thirdly, we come to the letter. And first, let us see about the letter. This is verses 22 through 29, that there was general agreement. And so they send out this general letter at the hands of Silas and Judas. And this is what it said. In in essence, Uh, We we acknowledge that men went out from us, but we assure you without our authorization. They were teaching unauthorized teaching. Let us make that clear. And they offer this command, yes, and it was binding, citing their agreement with full confidence that it was the will of the Holy Spirit. And they were able to say that as apostles, obviously, but you see the elders also had a hand in it. Verse 23. But you notice that they had no desire to further burden them. The counsel of James or the judgment of James was accepted. That The decision was to lay no yoke upon them except that of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. No, they would not, as others had done, unsettle their souls. But here is what they must do, as we've seen. Verse 29. 
We don't want to lay a greater burden on you other than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Yes, I say again, these were necessary. These were binding from the standpoint of Christian love and unity. For if the Gentiles would ask the Jews to accept them, they must show a measure of love abstaining from that which at table was most liable to offend the conscience of newly converted Jewish Christians, long schooled in the law of Moses. And this is always a good policy with new Christians and new converts. We must not do those things which, though we are free to do, are bound to offend our brother. Let him first, we say to ourselves, grow strong in faith. And then we are free to do what we like in his presence and things in difference. But again, I say, let us see. How love constrains us, how it imposes upon us a necessity like this. Let us not rush to offend our brother just because we are free. And let our conduct, as Peter will later say, speaking to Gentiles once again, let our conduct be excellent. Let us abstain from sexual immorality. But finally, let me notice abiding principles we might glean from the incident Concerning, first, controversies and the church, that is, Presbyterian polity. Well, there are two great answers for the question, why Presbyterian polity? The first is because it's scriptural, and the second is because it is the best policy to settle controversies. To discern controversies, we must seek to discern discern the voice of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, but to do so in the assembly of believers, especially those whom he has appointed as overseers. In other words, we don't stand on an island. We don't settle uh, the most pressing matters of the day on our own. We do so, I say again, in the company of believers. But the second point in closing is getting the gospel right. We need to get the gospel right. But do you see it isn't so easy? Do you realize that Peter himself got the gospel wrong? He saw a dream from heaven. He experienced wonderful things. And a little bit of pressure and he began to go astray. So often it is, like I said, in the realm of implication, in this case, table fellowship, our practice begins to differ from our doctrine. This happens sometimes even to the apostles. But I would also notice, I'm quick to note Peter's straying, but let me also say it wasn't for long. He didn't stray for long. Peter was so anchored in the gospel That just as soon as he began to stray, it wasn't hard for Paul to correct him. And I suppose that's the real test for us all. I won't say you'll never deviate. In fact, I'll say you will. For sure, you will deviate from time to time. But when you do, will your brother be able to call you back very easily? Are you like these men so anchored in the gospel that it isn't difficult to reclaim you? It's easy. Just as soon as you hear the sound of the gospel once more, you regain your senses and you're ready with Peter to contend for it once more. How easy is it it for your brother to bring you back when you begin to stray? And what's the gospel anyways? Well, it's this, that there is no distinction, but that any man can be saved by a simple faith in Jesus Christ. That's the teaching of Paul. That's the teaching of Peter. That is my own teaching. Is that what you understand by the gospel? Are you still Secretly in your own heart erecting barriers that Christ has broken down. 
And do you see that that's not only the heart of the gospel, and it is the heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone, in which there is no distinction, but that it is the most practical doctrine in the world, that it concerns not only my relationship to God, but to every other Christian who is saved in exactly the same way? Or did we imagine, as the Jews in these days did, that others were saved differently than we? And do you realize why so much was at stake here at the Jerusalem Council and why this of all doctrines is worth fighting for as the doctrine Melanchthon said upon which the church stands and falls? Not just the gospel, but the church. It stands upon this doctrine. Do you see that? And will you fight for it, beloved, in an age of flimsy sentimentality that doesn't put a premium on doctrine? Can we be surprised at the result, not just that the gospel is suffering, but the church? Has the church ever been weaker than she is today in America? But will you show the courage of these men, Peter, Paul, and James, to stand for this doctrine and to make all depend upon it? There's nothing in all the world more important than the gospel of grace. Will you fight for it, beloved? That's what, well, that's what Paul was saying to Peter. And Peter was strengthened, and so he did. And that's what I'm saying to you. Will you fight for it? Do you believe this gospel? And will you stand up for it when others attack it? Will you even oppose your dear brother as Paul did Peter when he gets the gospel wrong? These are the great and enduring lessons of Acts chapter 15. May we take them to heart and live by them. Amen. Let us stand and sing praise to God in response to his word. Hymn 452. Hymn 452.